0: Hey everybody! You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and here today we have a special guest with us, uh, author and pastor J.Y. Kim. Welcome to the Church Theology Podcast, Jay.
1: Thanks, Kirk. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So, Jay Kim is lead pastor of teaching at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley. He's the author of a book called Analog Church that was released in 2020. Analog Christian uh, is a book that's forthcoming sometime this year anticipated, and he's a contributing author to Before You Lose Your Faith with the Gospel Coalition. Some of his writing, um, some of his written work has appeared and been uh, featured on Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, and Relevant Magazine and he is on the leadership team of Regeneration Project and co-hosts the Regeneration podcast. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and his two children. And so we are so glad to have Jay on the podcast with us today, and we're going to be discussing that first book I mentioned, um, Analog Church. The subtitle is Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the digital age. And this is a book that actually won the Outreach Resource of the Year uh, for a book award with the Gospel Coalition. I think I read this, there was a time this earlier this summer in 2021, where I read a bunch of books sort of related to the digital age, technology, things like that. Yeah. And I just thought it was super helpful. And so I reached out to Jay and he's willing to come on and just talk about these things. So yeah, thanks again. I, let's start off with just a quote from the book, and I'd love to just have you expound on what you mean by this quote, what, what you're saying here. And you say at one point in the book, you say the church was never meant to be a derivative of the cultural moment, but rather a disruption of it. Talk to us about what you're saying there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, that, that quote, I think, in some ways is... Um foundational to the entirety of the book. So uh, I think to summarize it as succinctly as possible, what I mean is that when we look back on 2000 years of Christian church history, and when you look back even further than that to the history of God's people, um, you know, and what we might call the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, I think that one of the consistent themes that we see Is that God's people are first and foremost, they're called by God, and secondarily, they are most effective in their mission in the world uh, when they zig as the world zags. So, in other words, to stand as um, a sort of countercultural, you know, some might say a reformational community that stands in resistance to the cultural tides of the day not not for the sake of being contrarian you know not for the sake of just like trying to be the hip cool kid who's not like everybody else but um, actually much deeper than that uh, to stand on the unwavering unchanging time lives um, truths and realities of God's plan for his own glory and for human flourishing, even when the cultural tides are pushing us in oppositional directions. And that applies in so many different ways. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, you know, very, very uniquely true in the digital age. And it's, it's the reason why I wrote the book. I, I was growing in, my level of concern that as we began, and by we, I mean churches and church leaders in particular, as we began leveraging the digital technologies at our disposal, um, if we do so thoughtlessly and carelessly, uh, we could very easily find ourselves, and I, I think in many cases are finding ourselves in a position where we might be unknowingly allowing the cultural tides of the day to move us in particular directions that um, feel effective because it feels very relevant to the cultural moment, but actually might be uh, incredibly ineffective because we find ourselves just like everything and everyone else sort of competing in the digital landscape, you know, vying for everybody's Attention, you know, and uh, we lose in in such uh, in such sort of carelessness, we lose the ability to be what I think God has always called the church to be and His people to be in the world, which is not um, necessarily relevant to culture, but uh, to be a community that um, offers transcendence, you know, transcendent toward culture, something that looks and sounds and feels. Uh, different than what people can get anywhere else. So there's obviously a lot to say about that, but that sort of is a is a summary of, of what I mean by that quote.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. In some ways, um, it, it feels like if we're if we're going to map on your discussion into the realm of missiology, um, sometimes people raise the the matter of like contextualization it feels like, in some ways, you're kind of rubbing up against the issue of contextualization. For those who aren't familiar with that term, that's sort of how does the gospel adapt to different cultures? So, like, what a church looks like in Eastern Europe is going to understandably be different than what it looks like in South Africa or what have you. And so, but sometimes contextualization can be used to legitimize, legitimize like, just doing whatever the culture does. And what you're trying to say, it seems like. Um, is that sometimes the most contextual thing you can do to show the gospel in a culture is to actually be different than the culture. Uh, not just be the same as it. It makes me think of like you're saying the whole story of scripture kind of tells a story about how Israel, even going back to the Old Testament, Israel is given a set of peculiar laws that create sort of a framework for how bizarre they're supposed to be to these surrounding nations to reflect the holy God that they worship. And then in the New Testament, the church continues that identity as Peter calls us sojourners and strangers that we're, there were, we're in exile. That's sort of our identity. So we should stand at odds. You're trying to then map that on and say, okay, what does that look like in the digital age per se? So we're not in any, like the church and the people of God has always been in this in, in situation where they have to be exiles in the world. But you're trying to say, what does that look like in our context, specifically in light of the digital age? So talk to us a little bit more about like, what do you mean by that phrase, digital age? What are we talking about?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think more broadly, social historians identify the digital age as the information age. And so the information age, I think most social historians would agree, you see sort of the advent of the information age, what they categorize as the information age, sort of in the mid to late 20th century. And this is when um, there was a dramatic shift in uh, the speed and accessibility of information exchange and more specifically the digital age sort of being born out of that you see the rise of the digital age probably in the 60s and 70s initially it's when computers became um, more commonplace in both business and personal use uh, you know which changes everything so you think about just even in our day and age today, how much of the information you exchange with people is done via uh, emails and text messages and whatever else. Um, that's a dramatic shift, right? You think back a hundred years, if you wanted to send somebody uh, a note or uh, exchange some information with them, I mean, you'd have to like handwrite a letter and get a stamp and you know, it'd take a day or two to, to arrive. Now I can just text you no matter where you are in the world and get you that data or that information, uh, right away. You know, the speed and accessibility of communication is, has dramatically changed. So the digital age, that phrase is one of those rare phrases where I think most people can intuit their way to its definition. It, it is what it sounds like. It's the age or era in human history where um, the majority of our communication exchange has been digitized. So again, it's computers, you know, it's emails, it's text messages, it's social media. And obviously that has been uh, ramped up exponentially. So since the turn of the century, since, you know, we hit the 2000s, and then even exponentially, even more so, once we hit sort of the 2010s you know so that's the it, the digital age is essentially the information age the the computerization and digitization of our communication exchanges that is really really ramped up probably in the last um 15 to 20 years uh but the advent of which we saw sort of in the in the late 20th century so that's that's what i mean that's what most social historians mean when they say uh the digital age
0: Yeah. And what's important about this for the listener is not simply that there are new inventions or new phenomenon happening in society, but that these sort of social conditions shape our view of reality. So like an example that maybe feel in some ways, it might be harder to sense this when you're living in it. Uh, maybe in some ways it's easier. But like in the past, prior to the development of more scientific methods, people within the medieval era, you know, maybe they felt that the world just had more of a sense of being enchanted and the spirituality of the world was more apparent. And then as we're able to kind of master our domain through the sciences, it feels much less enchanted. It feels much more like we can manipulate our surroundings. Well, that shapes that's just not like. That's not merely just like an invention. It also like shapes our sense of reality. And so uh, my sense is that when you're bringing up the digital age, you're not just saying like, hey, some neat technologies have developed, but like you're raising the concern of how does that actually shape how we think about reality? Like if you were to talk to someone 30 years ago, would they have even the conception that you could sort of live a life? in some non-physical space of, that we call social media that that's actually like you're you have some sort of we speak of be having a social media presence like that feels like an oxymoron actually it's like there's no physical space there and yet we have a presence there and th- these are categories that make sense to us because we live them they've shaped our reality such that they 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 they're we just intuit them as you say but but we 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 want to be thoughtful about how these things are actually shaping us. And so talk more about then, how does this age we live in then, the digital age, the information age, how do you see that affecting us and shaping our outlook, our lives, our conception of personhood, relationship? I realize that's a big category, a big question, but how do you see it shaping us?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I love what you just said there, Kirk. Yeah. The the ages in which we find ourselves are about so much more than the technologies, and the conveniences and comforts that those technologies offer us Uh, i get into this a little bit in the book but um, i I take a very brief look back at uh, other ages Um, the print age for example and Mm -hmm. the advent of the gutenberg press and how the print age sort of elevated the literary mind when uh, people were able to get books you know like before that if you wanted to read a book you really were talking about hearing a book read. You would have to go to a place and be with the people and somebody who was actually literate and those folks would have been in the minority prior to the print age, prior to the Gutenberg Press. You would have to hear somebody who was able to read, read a book. And so, for example, um Hearing, you know, reading a book or experiencing stories was by its nature a communal experience at the time. Uh, you know, you think about the broadcast age and the advent of the television, you know, in the, in the early to mid 20th century and how that changes everything. It changes really our social construct. It changes the idea of celebrity. And of fame and notoriety, it changes the way uh, we perceive truth or untruths. You know we we begin to um, we begin to place a deep trust initially in particular media, and then that grows to a growing distrust. And we see some of uh, some of the fallout of that today. Um, So yeah, I, I love what you said there. So in terms of how these ages affect us. I agree completely with what you said. It's not just that they offer us technologies which offer us conveniences and comforts and make life easier. They actually form us. They form who we are. So there's a lot to say about this, but the digital age in particular, I would say it's built on three key values, um, speed, individualism, and choice. And uh, those three key values um they have a way, and this is true of every age, those values have a way when they are left unchecked, they have a way of turning in on themselves. There was this uh, 20th century philosopher named Marshall McLuhan who did a lot of work on this. He he called it the four laws of media. And by media, he didn't mean like CNN or Fox News. He just meant any sort of medium which extends human capacity. Um, so uh, is fascinating work, but essentially, and I'm I'm sort of summarizing a bit here. You know, the speed of the digital age, like Wi-Fi, is constantly getting faster. You know, four G goes to five G to on and on. Right, the speed of the digital age is forming in us a sort of nagging, growing impatience. We're becoming an impatient people. Uh, the plethora of choices in the digital age, you think about, you know, if you need a new pair of socks, you can go on Amazon and how many dozens of pages are there that you can scroll to look for a pair of socks. I mean, just the endless amount of choices are forming in us a sort of shallowness. Uh, if you if you have an endless array of choices, you never really need to to linger in one particular thing for any extended amount of time because you know that you can just move on to the next choice if the first choice doesn't suit your personal preferences just so. And then the individualism of the digital age, where everything about our digital experiences are becoming increasingly curated and personalized, and now computer algorithms are doing the curation and personalization for us, in such an age, um, that individualism is making us incredibly isolated. And the data bears this out. I mean, you know, you, you think about, um, if you chart it out on a graph, it's, it is shocking to see, um, as you sort of map out the increase of digital media and the increase of social media. And it's almost like there's a parallel line in terms of the increase of the sense of social isolation and loneliness and the rise of um, depression and anxiety. You know, the, the promise of the Internet that it would make us this incredible global village where we were never alone and we were always connected to one another. The inverse has happened. As we find ourselves more steeped in digital media and social media, we are growing increasingly isolated and increasingly lonely. And so um, there's a lot to say about that. There's you know whole chapters in the book about that. But those are some of the key ways that are alarming to me, and I think alarming to many people about how uh the digital age in particular is forming us, and I would say deforming us, making us less human and creating environments where um, human flourishing is becoming increasingly challenging today.
0: yeah and to be clear, you don't come across in the book as sort of this anti-technology person sort of a like you're not presenting sort of let's let's go back to a time in the past or like you're some luddite let's throw all the technology away like that would feel really ironic as I'm sitting here, interviewing you over zoom you know like the technology yields us some great advantages and i i love technology and it sounds like you do as well from the book um like it it's it's similar to um you know during the reformation there was a printing press and of course that could that resulted in many ways that greased the wheels of the Protestant Reformation, able to print the Bible and tracts about the gospel, and yet also that allows for uh, the dissemination of wrong ideas too. Like there's that's a double-edged sword. Same thing with technology. I'm sure there's differences, but like some of the things we're talking about today, there's there's advantages, and you're not denying those, but you're also talking about the ways that we may subtly be falling prey to these deformative effects on us um, that we want to be aware of. And so, make your case. Then you you talk, and the subtitle kind of gives away the point of your book. Um, and you're using this idea of analog, like an analog um, like clock versus, say, like a digital clock, for example. So, um, just to give the people idea of what you mean by analog church, you you talk then. I guess, uh, I guess give us your flyover version is what I'm saying of why we need, as you say in the subtitle, real people, places, and things. Why we need an analog church in a digital age.
1: That's a great question. Um, yeah, there, again, there's a lot to say about this, but I guess the, the most sort of succinct way I can put it is that technology in general has a particular trajectory. And that trajectory is a trajectory that leads to increased convenience and accessibility, even automation and ease. This is true not just of digital technologies. This has just always been true, right? The reason human beings create new technology is not to make life more inconvenient. It's to make life more convenient, right? Nobody would argue that point. And that's actually good. To your point, I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-digital technology. What I am trying to do in the book is ask the question, how are these technologies forming us in such a way that if we allow them to, the technologies begin using us rather than us using the technology? And there's been a lot already said and written about this on a very popular level. There was that um, Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, you know, which was spearheaded by a man named Tristan Harris, who has been really helpful for me in sort of my thinking along these lines. Tristan Harris was uh, a design ethicist for Google. And then he very publicly resigned that position and very publicly said the reason he resigned was because he felt, and I'm not bashing Google here, I still use Google, but the story is what the story is. Tristan Harris came out and he said Google hired him to be a design ethicist. But they didn't actually want him to implement ethical change to their design. They just kind of wanted the PR of saying, we have an ethicist here. we were trying to be ethical in the way we leverage our technology and put it out there. And he realized that actually hurts the bottom line. It hurts the, the, the revenue stream of digital companies to be ethical. And there's a lot to say about that again, but one of the reasons is because to form us into the sorts of people that God has called us to be, there are particular things that need to happen in real time and in real ways, uh, in physical ways. I would argue in physical ways. So again, going back to the trajectory of technology, if technology is designed to increase convenience and increase ease and increase automation in our lives, What we have to recognize is that that then decreases our level of personal participation and practice, the leveraging of our own strength, the development of our own skills. And this is all well and good in many cases. This is, this is actually perfectly fine. And the conveniences and comforts that technologies offer us are actually quite helpful in some ways, but there are some things in life that demand there is no other way, but to actually physically participate in embodied ways. So the most basic example of this I could give is, um, you know, I have friends who are like CrossFit junkies, right? They're, they're members of CrossFit. I am not, but I have friends who are. Now I could go on YouTube and watch every, there There are like hundreds, maybe thousands of CrossFit videos on YouTube, like videos of people showing you all of the exercises. So an extreme example of this would be, I have access to all of the information. Like I don't need to go to a CrossFit gym to learn how to do the CrossFit exercises. I could just watch it from the convenience of my own home on my laptop or my phone. But why is it that people pay a lot of money to actually go and physically be a part of the CrossFit gym? Well, it's because watching the video gives me the information, but it actually does nothing in terms of my actual development physically as a human being. You have to actually show up and do the exercises. Now, you might some people might counter argue that point they might say well i could watch the exercises and do the exercises from home i could still physically participate from the convenience of my own home but if you ask anybody who is a part of an actual crossfit club or a crossfit gym what they will tell you is that that doesn't do it that a, that a, an, an enormous part of the crossfit experience is the communal experience it's the inspiration, the motivation, the accountability you experience when you do the work of showing up to a place with other real people who are shoulder to shoulder with you, sweating it out, putting in the effort. And there's no way to replicate that sort of communal inspiration and accountability on your own from the comfort of your own home digitally. And, uh, I think, I think we felt it even during COVID when you think about um, churches, you know, as we needed, and our church did this as well for, th- for the sake of the common good, you know, for health reasons. When churches went all online, when our churches were meeting on, um, Zoom and, you know, on online streams, I mean, we really missed something. And there's going to be a slow sort of return to the church. And some people will never return. And that's, you know, really sad to me. But the reality is, Intrinsically, I think we felt in our body and bones, man, this is helpful for the time that we are in. It's a compromise we have to make, but this is not it. We're missing something here when we're not with one another um, on a visceral on a real sort of visceral level. And so, you know, the best way to summarize it, I think, and I think this is biblical, like embodied humans need embodied humans. That's the way God designed human beings. It's the way God designed the human story. And I think we know that intrinsically in our body and bones. So again, there are a lot to say there, but um, those are some some early thoughts.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you brought up COVID and um, this book was actually released, if I have my information right, March, 2020. I remember our church first sort of encounter, like COVID was kind of like hit our area we're first grappling with how it impacts our att- like service and in-person service and all that in March of 2020 so I believe it was March 15th actually that Sunday um, and so your book like so it's about the same time that many churches in the U.S. were starting to have having to grapple with church closure, closures moving online due to COVID and all this but all that said your book was then presumably written Without a view to everything that would eventually happen with COVID and how churches would have to respond. Um, to the pandemic. So on the one hand, that means your book was not written like I wouldn't want someone to hear it as if it was some political argument in as much as sort of COVID gets interpreted politically by, by some folks. So it wasn't, it wasn't intended like that. It wasn't written as sort of how churches should respond to COVID. It's just an interesting timing. Like it was just really providential, you might say. And on the other hand, in some ways, your book actually becomes all the more significant as some of the concerns you address in the book may uh, become all the more intensified as churches have been impacted by the pandemic. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, I do wonder, like, if you were writing the book today, knowing what you know now about the pandemic and, and sort of those things, like, if you were writing it in the pandemic or after the pandemic, like, would there be anything you'd change or that you'd add in light of the last two years?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's anything I would change. If anything, in light of the last two years, you know, my, I've sort of doubled down. Actually, I, I just think the last two years have revealed to us how desperately we actually need, uh, physicality, embodied presence to be with one another. And again, the data bears this out. You know, where I live right now um, here in Silicon Valley, in our county, Santa Clara County, our Board of Supervisors is proposing uh, right now, this week, actually, they're proposing um, a declaration. This is one of the things that, you know, Board of Supervisors do, I guess, uh, a declaration to declare that we are in an actual public health crisis Um, specifically because of the mental health crisis born out of the last two years, uh, because the data is bearing that out. That level of um, levels of depression, uh, actually there's data here in our county that even addiction um, to a variety of things has uh, exponentially increased in the last two years. Um, Relationships, marriages are falling apart. I mean, there's just... You know, the lack of uh, the increase of isolation has done incredible damage um, to us because, again, embodied humans need embodied humans. And so I, I've really doubled down. I think that we need one another in real ways and in real time and in real space. If there is something I would add, uh, and I've said this on other interviews, I will say, I, I will readily admit simultaneously that though I'm doubling down on my thoughts in the book I've also my level of gratitude for the digital technologies at our disposal has increased I, I will admit that I think in some ways I took some of these technologies a, a little bit for granted um, you know if I just try I try to imagine the last two years had we not had at least what we had the ability, to at least communicate online, to at least from a church perspective, to at least stream uh services, to have a prayer room online, um, Zoom where we could at least see one another's faces and hear one another's voices. All of these things have been incredibly helpful. One of the things we try to do, uh, we, we try to reach out and contact every single person in our church these last couple of years. We did it twice. We just divided up all the names in our database between all of our staff and we actually literally called or emailed or FaceTimed all of them. So I think about how technology allowed us to be able to do that. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. But even my gratitude um, pushes me in a direction where, again, I'm doubling down because what those connection points did for me Ultimately, they made me long to be with people, to be with these people in a real place and in real time. You know, so as I saw these faces on Zoom calls for prayer meetings and such, I was so grateful, but I was also mostly I was feeling, man, I cannot wait until this digital divide is gone and we're together and we're praying like this together and conversing like this together in a real place, uh, truly with one another. Um, so, so those are those are some of the thoughts I've had uh, post COVID.
0: Yeah, and I would say my sense of like as churches headed into COVID, it really—I mean, I'm speaking very generally here, broad brushing—but in many ways, it it sort of unveiled a bad ecclesiology that already existed. I don't know if it necessarily created a bad ecclesiology, but there was a lot of things that were happening that would have. Sh- sh- put a put a like kind of expose some bad thinking the fact that we maybe i would say i'm not necessarily i'm not like poo-pooing churches that did certain things and there's difficulties in trying to figure out how to handle the pandemic and what church looks like so showing grace obviously to how people handled that differently but maybe what you're saying is there should be a level, level of discomfort with some of those things like the way that so many churches kind of seamlessly moved into those things i think would be um indicative that their understanding of the church and I'm not even speaking to leaders here just like even just like the average church going person or, or professing Christian like it did seem like the pandemic unveiled some bad theology of the church which is what I mean by ecclesiology um not that it not that it created it it already existed it just put a light on it and if if anything it sort of exacerbated it. Um, so it is interesting, like how, how post COVID, like, what is this, what is people's conception of the church going to look like going forward? How does our, like, how does our environment shape our view of things we were talking about before? And I wonder how does the environment of the pandemic shape our view of the church going forward, um, potentially in ways that aren't helpful. So, yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great thought. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I think what COVID did was amplify and create a very, uh, you know, a, a, a very sort of clear dividing line between two distinct ecclesiologies. One for some, uh, it has amplified the reality that for some, they have always viewed the church as content, you know, that the church, sure. and you can uh, do that digitally. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you should do it digitally. I mean, digital is a great medium for the exchange of content. So for many uh, for whom that's what church was, we didn't really realize it as much before COVID, um, but what COVID did is it amplified that reality that, that many people see church as a, as a uh, purveyor of content, give me good Christian content, some morsels of inspiration, maybe a little bit of challenge sprinkled in here and there, and, uh, and then I'll be on my way. You know that there's a dividing line between people who, for whom ecclesiology is that, and then for some who who realize and recognize that no, the church is not content. The church is a family to whom I belong. And um, when you think about your family, our families, you know, and I know there's various family dynamics, but the reality is nobody is going to walk out of COVID and say, you know, it was actually really great that. Um, I was only able to see my family on my digital screen, you know? I think most people would say, no, I I can't wait until this is over and it's safe for us to return so we could have Christmas like actually together in a real room and share a real meal with one another. I know that's not true for everybody. Some people have like pretty messed up family dynamics and stuff, but I'm just generalizing here, you know? And, uh, so f- f- for those of us who see church as family, the-, the family of God, um, I think the same applies, you know, there's going to be a deep longing to be with one another again. And, and I think we're seeing that in some ways.
0: Yeah. I think that's helpful distinguishing. Like if you view church as content, well, that's something that can, and not that you shouldn't, like you said, be using technology for the sake of, uh, disseminating content. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, but like, if you just view church as a, simply the, uh, Someone who passes something that passes on content, like you can just easily move that online. No big deal. If it's actually a community, you can't replicate that online in the same sort of way. And even just thinking about like we kind of began the discussion, thinking about how our social setting and social environment and social dynamics sort of shape our view of reality, like what does it do? Just thinking about questions, like what does it do to us, for example? What forming effects is it having on us when I stream into a church on my iPhone, which is the same thing I might use for Instagram or I might use for YouTube? And it starts to treat it like like almost like without thinking about it, maybe it's I'm getting the same sense of like I'm a consumer now rather than a participant, rather than a member of the church. I'm sort of like just like I watch a YouTube channel and maybe subscribe, maybe unsubscribe if I don't Like it, I'm sort of in the setting of being a consumer rather than a participant. And so it's just, I think COVID in some ways makes the thesis and the point of your book even more needful. Mm. So, with that, um, unless you have something you want to add, no, that's great. um, Yeah. I would say, I think um, you in your book, you break it down into three parts Mm. worship, community, and scripture. And we'll see how much how much we can get through with the time we have left. But I'd kind of like to ask you the same question for each of those categories, which is how does the digital age deform us? What I mean by deform is like it's it's having a bad effect on us, okay? So how does the digital age deform us with respect to our understanding and practice of Fill in the blank with these things. And then why is the analog church then needed to counterform or reform us in ways? okay? So so i'm I'm kind of rehashing these things for the listener. But for worship, so the first category being worship, how does the digital age deform us with respect to our practice of worship? And why do we need the analog church to help reform us in how we engage and think about worship?
1: Yeah, with worship, I think we've, we've gotten into it a little bit already, but my main concern is that when we digitize worship and we think about worship as, again, something we can experience digitally, what we are saying then, by and large, is that worship is content that we can consume. It's good music and it's, you know, a fine presentation and something that's sort of enthralling visually or sonically or whatever. And, uh, biblically speaking, that's, that's not worship. You know, the, the word for worship, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, um, they have within them, bound up within both of their definitions, a sort of physicality. They, they mean things like to bow down prostrate, to, to reach out and kiss the hand of, of, uh, you know, um, a, a higher authority, which was a sign of reverence and respect. And it's also, you know, biblically, worship is almost always, Communal, And that's something we've lost, not just because of the digital age, but because of the hyper individualism of the late modern Western world. You know, we think that worship is actually just me and God, you know, but worship biblically is by its nature communal. And anything individual is because we are swept up as individuals into the, into the communal family of God. And as individuals, we participate. But the key there is that, um, if you see worship as content, digital content you can consume, then by by the very nature of that perspective, uh, you are removing yourself from wholehearted physical participation in worship. But biblically speaking, worship is uh, something the community of God creates to offer to God together. It's not content we consume and receive from the Christian professionals. So to do that, to create worship together and offer it to God, you, you, I don't know how you would do that digitally. You would have to, you have to somehow show up and participate in the act of creating worship and offering it to God. And obviously there's a lot to say about this. You know, people would say like, well, worship is a lifestyle. You're worshiping all the time. And yes, I completely agree. But beyond that, there is a lot to say about, uh, the communal nature of worship. And again, the whole concept of worship as a lifestyle, you are a worshiper everywhere you go. It's absolutely true, but it's also simply one slice of the larger whole. Uh, and I think it's the one slice we focus on because of the hyper individualism of the late modern Western world. You know, we just think we can encapsulate our, enti- the entirety of our Christian faith into my own individual life you know and that's only one part of the puzzle so there you go that's kind of a succinct big broad stroke way of, of describing it
0: walk us through a similar case when it comes to community how does the digital age deform us with respect to our understanding and practice of community and why do we need the analog church to uh to reform us in those ways
1: Yeah, if you think about community in the digital age, um, it really isn't community. It's a misnomer to say we have community in the digital age. What we have in the digital age is in uh, what we have is an individual journey through a forest of ideas and digital caricatures of people. And with a click of a button, literally the click of a button. We can curate our experience of that forest. So I can block someone I don't like on Twitter literally in, in a nanosecond by clicking my finger on a button. Um, I can unfollow. I can like or unlike uh, people's posts or whatever with literally just a click of a button. And we call that community in the digital age. But it's not really community. It's a curated experience of this forest of other individuals. But because I'm curating the experience to my preferences and to my liking and my own personality, um, it's not really truly communal in the most uh, natural sense of the word. It's just a personalized, curated experience of other people. Genuine community is when you show up in a place and there are people there that you didn't necessarily choose and you are forced by and large to learn how to live amongst the people that you did not curate for yourself and the the finest example of this is the way jesus calls community around himself when he is living and teaching on the earth i mean he calls together this band of young men who really had no business being with one another the, the prime example of this would be you know matthew the tax collector and simon the zealot i mean culturally speaking there's some argument um uh, among scholars whether simon the zealot were translating that right was he truly like a zealot but either way the the identifying marker is intended to illustrate that these two men were not of the same tribe. Like they were both Jews, but they weren't like in the same socio-political camps. Like they didn't agree, you know? And this is probably true of many of the disciples. We see it in the birth of the early church when it says in Acts, early on in the book of Acts, that there were God-fearing Jews from all over the world. Like they didn't even speak the same language and yet they are bound up together together because of the power of the resurrected Christ, and they're made into a brand new family. You see this in Paul's letters, where over and over again, he gives these like really practical examples of how our sense of family should um, erase the dividing lines that separate us. Uh, You see this a lot, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, right? That the stuff that once divided us, those things have to be no more. That we have to exist, coexist, and love one another and labor together as family. None of that happens digitally. Like digitally, our sense of community is a curated experience. And uh you know, we might say like, no, 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 I, I see people on Twitter all the time that I disagree with. Yeah, but when you think about the nature of our disagreements on social media, for example, it's like almost all vitriol and venom. It's just us cutting one another down and then bailing. We never linger long enough to move in the direction of compromise uh and then eventually unity. You know, we never move toward love. We just move toward amplifying that which divides us. And so I I think that there is a very wide chasm between, and I'm using air quotes here, like community in digital spaces and genuine community when you show up to a place. For example, when you show up to a church. Um, chances are very high that you're going to be in a room with people who have very different political and sociopolitical leanings than you. And yet there you are. It's not as easy in that environment to unfollow. You can't just click a button and make that person disappear. The person is there. And you have to learn how to love that person and to be loved by that person and to coexist as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff, it just, it doesn't happen digitally. So again, a lot to say there's like a couple chapters in the book dedicated to that idea, but there you go.
0: Yeah. That's super insightful though. Um, And I hope if someone's listening, they haven't thought in those terms like that is really helpful. Like we can't even just think about like, you know, Facebook has groups like we're sort of the social media is building us to like find people who are like minded. And there's something really neat about that. Like say you're really into disc golf. You can find other people who are into disc golf in your area. that's cool. But like. It's shape- what What are the ways that that's shaping us? We're We're shaped to block people we don't like. We're We're not forced to tolerate. We're not forced to compromise. We're We're forced to find people who are more like minded to us. And I love how you say like, the church is not centered around sort of commonalities we might already have. We're socially speaking, there's natural links, but we're centered around Jesus. So that even like I might be I might be a part of the same church with an old an uh, an uh an older like. 80-year-old widow who I have very little in common with, but what we have in common is Jesus, and we're forced to work through those differences. Maybe the other piece, too, outside of just how it's forming us to, be, um, to have a, a less um, rich and healthy sense of community, is I think... Even what social media does in terms of like the self that we project is a very fabricated self. We only post the things we want to post. We're not really known. Like we're only known on our terms. So we pick the profile picture that we want to pick. And we we are only we, are only, we can set our settings so that we can only get tagged in things that we want to be tagged in. And and so not only does it shape the way we interact with others, but it shapes the way that, um, that we allow others to interact with us. And so to, to, we want, and that's the one of the difficulties, I think, and maybe. I don't know if this relates to some of the data on depression, but like I think we inherently want to be known as people. Like We want to be known, but there's a danger in wanting to be known because as soon as we're known, we're afraid that we won't be loved. And so we simultaneously want to be loved and known, and those seem to be incompatible. And yet for someone to know a superficial sense of me is not really for them to know me and is therefore not for them to actually love the true me. And whereas the church, so we're kind of left in a pickle there online, but the church is actually a place where we can have that because of the gospel. We have forgiveness. We can know one another truly without the fear of being rejected. Um, so the last category I would maybe raise to you is then the category of scripture. How does the digital age deform us with respect to our understanding and practice of engaging Scripture and how do we and why does the the analog church provide the needed corrective? Yeah, you
1: know this. These two chapters are like the ones that are most misunderstood when people don't. Okay. They, they uh, I've gotten some comments. People are like, "Well, I like reading my Bible on my UVersion version app," and they think I'm arguing against, uh, you know, like using an iPad to read your Bible, and I'm not. That's actually not what's happening there. Um, my concern with scripture is that the digital age is, this is really specific, but the digital age is forming us into a people who are losing our capacity for long format reading and long format narrative in many ways. And that's really my concern, uh, is that we are beginning because of, and this was happening long before the digital age, but I think the digital age sort of the Twitter sphere, you know, uh, our our tendency to scroll quickly, the speed of our thumbs uh, is increasing. You know, um, even you, you think about news media in the digital age and there's this increasing pressure for news organizations to come up with um, clickbaity titles to their arguments or to their articles. Right. Uh, because they need you. Um, they need to raise a level of urgency in us to get kind of the snippet, grab our attention enough um, to push us to read, you know, 500 words in an article or whatever. So there's like all this alarmist sort of stuff um, that, that's vying for our attention. And uh, that's really the concern there, that the scriptures are uh, intended as long format texts and communal texts. They're intended to be read and heard aloud in long format. Right. There are these long, sweeping narratives and poetry and uh, um, historical narrative and apocalyptic literature. You know, there's all the stuff. But I, I think, you know, and, and I'm not arguing against the the power of devotionally reading the Bible. I think that's really helpful. But I think devotionally reading the Bible, what I mean by that is reading a couple verses here and there to inspire us and encourage us. I think that that is akin to like taking vitamins, you know, uh, it's a great supplemental exercise. It really is. And it's something I would recommend, just like I would recommend taking vitamins. But if the entirety of our diet were made up of vitamins, like if I if I never really ate real food and all I did was just chew on vitamins all the time, I would actually grow increasingly unhealthy. You know, because I need like real food, real sustenance. And I would say uh, scripture is our engagement of scripture is like that reading devotionally these the sort of morsels of inspiration and truth with my favorite cup of coffee and, you know, half a psalm, a couple of verses in the morning. You know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, you know, and then moving on with my day. Great. Super helpful supplementally. But the the sort of foundation of my nourishment needs to come from sort of the long format. It's like, okay, that's a great verse, but what is Paul actually saying in his entire letter to the Philippians? What's the context of those words, this idea that I can do all things through Christ? What does that actually mean, you know? And why does it mean that? What was happening in the culture of the day? And um that's that's the stuff that really sustains us because that's the way the biblical texts are intended. And, uh, you know, my concern is that we are losing that. We're losing that in the digital age. The ability um, to sit for a long extended period of time in a text and allow that text to do its work in us slowly and steadily over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And just the way to help the reader, maybe a picture a little bit more what you're saying too. Like if you're on Instagram and you're following someone who shares like a nice Bible verse, just an isolated Bible verse. It's night. It's like presented in some cool graphic design. Like it's not that that's bad. That's scripture. Great. But it can create, it can, if that's, if that's sort of what we're encountering regularly, how does that form us? It formats us or forms us to kind of treat scripture in these isolated units. We get used to treating scripture that way or not that you're against uh, digital Bibles per se. Um, like I use Logos, for example, which is a Bible software tool. I have the ESV Bible app on my iPhone. Um, but what you do is that like, if I'm use if I'm only reading the Bible on my phone, like I'm only able to see a couple verses at a time. It's not forming me to be the sort of person who wants to like be able to easily glance at the context and look at verses above and below. So I'll if, if, if listeners don't like this, I, this is me, this is not Jay, write your angry emails to me. But like, I actually try to tell people, um, even my wife, I'll be like, Hey, like, I know it's difficult when she's trying to like hold a baby in the service and she's using their phone, her phone because it's easier. Like totally, I get that. But if you have the ability, like I, I love digital books. Most of my books are digital, but when it comes to my Bible, I try to use a physical Bible yeah. because I want to be able to easily see the context. I want that. Uh, there, there's just there's even studies done on like your ability to comprehend is better when you're reading a physical book. That's right. And so it's just being aware. It's not anti technology. There's obviously a lot of benefits. Like I find a lot of benefits to having my books digital. Um, And I've actually done articles on why I I like having a digital library, but there's just you just have to be aware of how it's forming you in unhelpful ways. Yeah. Or even if you just think about the fact that you're using your Bible on a phone that also has, you know, potentially your social media apps or your email or your text and something that you get notifications on, something that's sort of built to distract you with that little red number telling you have something to check. Like it makes your Bible reading potentially um, all that more distracted, sort of inhibiting your ability to meditate and dwell on the text. Um, maybe last question then. Is what practical advice would you give to someone who wants to think and act more intentionally about their Christian life, practicing analog church in the digital age?
1: What a great question. Yeah, I think I would just say, ask these questions of yourselves. How is your own leveraging and use of digital technologies? How is it forming you? How is it deforming you? How is it changing you? Pay attention to your level of patience. Pay attention to your sense of true, genuine connection to community. You know, pay attention to um, the level of depth that you experience in your life. Uh, you know, pay attention to the little things. How do you feel when you're uh, in traffic? Like, I mean, just thematically in your life. You know, how do you feel when you're doing the slow, mundane things of life? Are there slow, mundane things of life that you participate in? Beyond the church, you know, do you garden? Do you have a craft that you slowly do over time? Maybe a 5,000 piece puzzle that you can't finish in one night. I mean, pay attention to those things. And I would say in, begin incorporating some of those things that can reform patience and depth and community in your life. You know, we, we have to be really, really diligent. And intentional about forming, um, these characteristics within us. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm writing a follow-up book to Analog Church called Analog Christian. And the book is really just an exploration of Paul's words in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And, uh, I'm just juxtaposing each of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit over and against um, some negative symptoms of the digital age. But what has been so helpful for me is that Paul, he says in Galatians 5, in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, we also keep in step with the Spirit. And that phrase, keep in step, in the ESV is actually in the original text. In the Greek, it's just one word. And it's actually like It's a military term that Paul was using. It was a military term at the day where it described very specifically how soldiers would stand. They would draw up lines together and move as one as a sort of method of defense in battle. That's what Paul is saying. Like keep in step with the spirit. Move as one with the spirit. It describes when you think about kind of the military imagery it describes a disciplined and effortful conformity to the Spirit of God. So that's what I would say. Ask yourself that question. Are you almost in a, in a military way? And I don't mean like be militant necessarily, but just in a sort of like, like a soldier. Are you conforming yourself? To the moving of the spirit, the pace, the speed, the direction of the spirit of God in your life. And if you are, my guess is that you are finding your life moved in the direction of patience, in the direction of depth, in the direction of community, um, because that's what the spirit of God does. He moves us in those ways. And so um, there you go. Again, a lot to say there, but but that would be sort of one big picture encouragement I, I might give.
0: Great. Yeah, and one more that you, that you uh, failed to mention is picking up your book, Analog Church, <laughs> and giving it a read. <laughs> so, of course, uh, yeah, go ahead. If this conversation has been helpful to you as a listener, um, I would encourage you to do that. Go ahead and pick up his book and look forward to his forthcoming book, analog Christian. Uh, Jay, it has been awesome talking with you. I've really enjoyed the time. And uh, as we prayed before we started, I just pray that this conversation would be useful to people uh, for the sake of of God's kingdom and the mission of the church. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Kurt.